Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. You know, don't be afraid. You're as, as good as anybody else walking in there. Everybody else is going to find it strange as well. Um, and just um, never be afraid to, to ask and never be afraid to ask for help if you're, if you're struggling a bit. Today I'm talking to Dame Sue Ian, who's an independent expert and advisor on nuclear power. Welcome, Sue, and thanks for joining me. Very happy to be with you, Andrew. Thank you for asking me. So you grew up in um, Carlisle and then uh, moved to Preston uh, and went to Penwortham Girls Grammar School. Uh, tell us a little bit about the younger Sue. What were you like at school and what did you enjoy? Well, I guess uh, I've, I've always enjoyed um, sciencey things. Um, I mean, even uh, at a younger age, I was fascinated by things like uh, astronomy and getting, you know, books out of the library. And um, our family was, uh, I had a sister, so my dad didn't have any any boys to uh, do things with. So, you know, I used to help him make things, build things. And so I was always fascinated by that sort of thing from a, a very early age. And um, at, uh, at school at Pemberton, I, I always enjoyed the, uh, the science subjects um, and enjoyed uh, chemistry, you know, things that bubble and change colour, that sort of thing. Um, and I was, I was less enamoured with uh, things like uh, English, mainly because we used to get uh, an essay homework on a Friday to do over the weekend, which, you know, I always found difficult. And, you know, my mum had to really encourage me and on occasions help me out with that. So, so tell, you were talking about um, your, your, your science or chemistry teacher before. Tell us a little bit about your teacher and what they were like and how they enthused you and uh, well, we'd, with a great, uh, with a, you know, good physics teachers. Well, he had a physics club, um, <clears throat> and we did things like uh, build build a radio from scratch, you know, uh, with a crystal radio, with you know all the all the bits. And so, being able to do things like that was a, a good way to, um, you know, learn about things that weren't in the syllabus and and learn how things actually actually worked. And and that's always been something that I've I've really been interested in. And our chemistry teacher was a very enthusiastic guy um, called David Miller. Um, I mean, he, he's, he ran a, a girls cricket team as well, which I, I played for in the sixth form, um, you know, which was, wasn't you know, the norm for our, our school. Um, and uh, he bounced in one day when we we're in the sixth form and uh, said, you know, girls, you don't want to just do boring, straightforward subjects like chemistry, biology, physics. You know, you need to widen your horizons and and look at um, other subjects which are uh, slightly different. So he wasn't the careers teacher, he was, you know, just he was the chemistry master. Um, and so he introduced us to things um, like uh, physiology, which, you know, Dame Nancy Rothwell ended up doing, um, ophthalmology, uh, town and country planning. And he talked about this subject called material science, materials engineering. And that really fascinated me because it was a, a mixture of both physics and chemistry. Because I, I, I was sitting there thinking in, in the, what was the lower six, um, what, what, what am I going to have to drop to study at university? And um, taking material science forward, it meant that I didn't have to. It was, it just fascinated me as a subject, you know, 
he gave me a book called, you know, why why things fall apart, which was all about why materials fail, um, and uh, that fascinated me, and that's what led me to choose material science as a degree topic. But it is it is such a brilliant topic, isn't it? Because if you just look around the room, everything is made of materials, and behind anything you look at, there's a whole science from the, you know, the camera I'm looking at now, the computer, the books, and the shelves, and and, and everything, you know, so it comes into all walks of life, doesn't it? It does. And it, it also seemed to offer, you know, a, a wealth of career opportunities afterwards. You know, pretty much every company that you can think of um, in the technical world, you know, obviously had material scientists and engineers in it. So um, it seemed to be something that was was going to give me a, a good path forward. Yes. So so you applied to lots of universities and for material science and then. Uh, then you made the, the journey down to London to Imperial College uh, to take that up. How, how did you find that journey and that transition into university? Because I guess it was quite, there was a lot of change and, and really quite a different environment for you. Yes, it, I mean, it was very different. And also, you know, I was uh, somewhat reticent about, uh, about uh, choosing it because in um, looking at uh, the, the area to go, you know, London was, you know, a very big city, um, somewhere that was quite a long way from from home um, and there were some you know northern uh, universities in the the pool that you were picking from at, at the time um, but I can remember my uh, my headmistress uh, saying to me at the time you know if you get offered a place at material uh, imperial there is no way on this earth you're going to turn it down because you'll be the first girl from our school to go to imperial college so um, you know there was a bit of a bit of pressure at the back there as well um, so yes, Imperial was um, was very very different because it uh, at the time it, it didn't have um, a medical faculty which it has now, so it was it was very dominated by uh, by boys uh, rather than uh, being a bit more um, equal in in gender distribution as it is now, um, and so I was going from an all girls school to an environment where you know most of the students were were men. Um, although I have to say, um, in the materials course, um, it was around about 30% um, women. Um, and so that was uh, unusual for Imperial, but not necessarily unusual for the subject. It's always attracted quite a lot of, um, of women to study it because of the blend of physics and, um, and chemistry. What do you think you sort of learned about yourself? Because you, you, you step outside your comfort zone, don't you? And as you say, it's, it's all new and different and you're in a mixed environment. So what do you think you learned about yourself as a person? I mean, first of all, uh, fear, <laughs> because because our first lecture, I'll always remember this, uh, the first lecture was um, uh, some basic uh, physics. Uh, and uh, the guy who, who gave it um, came into uh, a lecture theatre, you know, um, a banked lecture theatre, and wrote Schrodinger's equation on the board. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure I'm going to like this course after all, because it just looked as though it was going to be really hard and, and difficult. And, and also, when you go to um, university, um, you know, I'd, I'd always done quite well at school, uh, but, you know, so had everybody else who was sitting there in the lecture theatre with me. Um, and so you, you, you go from being, you know, near the top of uh, a class to thinking, oh, crikey, you know, all these, there's all these other clever people. How am I going to fare in this, uh, in this particular mix? Uh, so there was that, but there was also, you know, a huge amount of, um, of enjoyment um, at you know, being in London, being able to go to the theatre, do lots of things um, in London, which I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Um, but uh, I mean, one of the 
interesting things about, about my first year was I, I actually, I, I got infective hepatitis during my first year. So um, I had to take uh, about six weeks uh, out. Fortunately, it was over uh, the Christmas period. So I missed a couple of weeks of the last week of term. Um, and it probably took until Easter rec to recover properly. Um, so yeah, it was quite tricky health-wise. And because I, you know, I missed out um, you know, two or three weeks of, of lectures, it's amazing how if you like the family of the students that I got to know um, really helped out and um, you know took lecture notes for me and gave gave me their notes um, and uh, you know helped me out with the problem sheets that were being issued you know while I, I was away so um, there was it was a very supportive environment which um, was helpful. So um, you went through your undergraduate and then you stayed on to do a PhD at Imperial so what was your sort of thought process there? Were you looking for jobs or did you did the passion for research and pushing the boundary of knowledge uh, capture your imagination? What was the um, reason for that? Um, yeah, I guess by the time I got to the uh, the third year, um, we 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 to do research projects um, and I was uh, really interested in the, you know, research aspects of the of the projects that were were given to us um, and so it just seemed to be a natural step forward to the the next stage and it was more a question of do I stay at Imperial or do I look to go somewhere else to do the the PhD um, and the reason that I stayed at Imperial was that I'd had a very good supervisor for my third year project I, I just felt that uh, in those days uh, you got three years to do your PhD. And at that time, people were finding it harder to complete within the three years, you know, especially if you moved. Um, and I felt, um, you know, I had a good supervisor. Um, I knew all the technicians, so I knew, you know, who to go to to get stuff done and where to get help from. And I just thought, you know, if I'm going to complete within three years, then um, it would be good to stay at Imperial. And, and the third year project also fascinated me. Um, and I wanted to take it forward. I mean, the third year project was actually associated with the, the nuclear sector in, in some way, which I went on to study for my PhD. Because we, we had a module in our third year, you know, you, you used to have modules, uh, aerospace materials, uh, you know, electronic materials, um, nuclear materials. And so you, could, you picked a couple of modules um, to, uh, as part of your third year course. And, and I'd pick nuclear materials. So and that absolutely fascinated me. And how did you find the transition from undergraduate to postgraduate? Because I always think that's, and having supervised PhD students, it's quite a jump for some people from, you know, answering an exam question from lecture notes that you've, or books that you've read or heard into thinking for yourself and thinking up a hypothesis and testing it with experiments and, and, and finding your own pathway through. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was you know, quite strange uh, for the first um, you know, couple of months while you started to settle down and realise that people weren't going to tell you what you to do all the time or you didn't get an instruction sheet about how to do things. Um, you had to um, decide what you were going to do. Um, I mean, it helped if you had a decent supervisor because you could then don't, go and discuss what you were going to do and you could tell from the expression on their face whether or not they thought it was a smart idea or not. It, it was uh, strange. I mean, the other strange thing was that Imperial in those days was quite formal at undergraduate level. Like they, they called the men Mr. X, Mr. Mm. Y, and they called the women Miss X, Miss Y. And 
when you start your PhD, they suddenly start calling you Sue and ask them to stop call, calling you them professor. You know, you get to call them by that first name. And that took that took a, a good few, probably took longer to get that right than it did to, uh, you know, figure out how you, you got going with your PhD. So then you, I guess, having done a, a research project um, associated with the nuclear industry, you then joined the nuclear industry at, at BNFL. Were you looking at other sectors as well, or was the nuclear sector the one that fascinated you the most? Well, it's, it's interesting because um, uh, also because I, I did a PhD in London at the time, the Inner London Education Authority were desperately short of science teachers. And so they, they used to approach um, Imperial and UCL, uh, in fact, the, the London Colleges, for PhD students to teach as supply teachers in their schools. Um, and so as a PhD student, um, you used to do demonstration to undergraduate students and get paid for it to supplement your grant income. Or you could do this, you could apply to be a teacher in, in London's colleges part time. So I did that. I ended up uh, at a school in Battersea, which at the time was um, you know, a pretty poor area. And it was a, a poor, as in economically poor school. And um, I mean, that was a, a huge culture shock for me in a way because I'd gone to you know a, a nice all-girls northern grammar school and I went into this school in Lavender Hill it was called Lavender Hill Girls School and um, was greeted by a you know cacophony of you know behavior that wouldn't have passed muster in my school and massive multicultural um, boiling pot of uh, you know ethnic diversity and uh, that I did that for three years and uh, it was it was actually good fun as well, um, but uh, very, very challenging. And so I actually thought about being a teacher when I finished as well as anything else. But the, uh, in the end, the research pull was too great. Uh, so I, I started to apply for, for jobs and I, I was really fascinated by the nuclear sector and uh, wanted to apply for jobs in that. I mean, I did apply for other jobs. I applied for uh, jobs uh, with a, a glass company um, and with um, uh, one in the aerospace sector as well. Um, but um, at the time, the nuclear industry was going through quite a bit of, uh, of change. And the area I applied to was cutting back and going to be privatised. And so uh, jobs were in short supply. But there was an advert for from BNFL, one of the Sunday newspapers, and it was actually for mechanical engineers, which which I am not, because uh, I wanted to go back to the northwest, um, and um, so I wrote and applied and said, you know, I'm not a mechanical engineer, but here's my expertise. You might like to consider me, and they gave me an interview, and you know, the rest is history. I'm just thinking about you in that that culturally diverse school. It's, it sort of grabbed my imagination that a bit. It must have felt outside your comfort zone, and must have again taught you something about resilience or your ability to adapt did you find that yeah it was a huge culture shock you know because I went to teach uh, to, to take the place of a, a teacher who was leaving on maternity leave to teach their what was their CSE uh, physics so it was to go and teach a relatively small group of, of girls um, the CSE physics course that's the equivalent of GCSE these, these days but when after I'd been interviewed by the head uh, she said all oh, right well can you start next week and I said this was probably about January time and uh, I said oh I thought I wasn't starting till after Easter she said oh we're desperately short of maths teachers I need somebody to teach maths to first and second years from next week <laughs> so and I said but I haven't done any exp I have no experience she said you'll be fine <laughs> and uh so I turned up and was introduced, you know, this is your new maths teacher to this 
bunch of first and second years, some of whom were behaviourally challenged, to put it mildly. And so that weekend, I came home and went to see my old headmistress and said, I, you know, I'm in this fix, what shall I do? <laughs> and she gave me a few tips and hints, you know, one of which was to, uh, you know, give them a simple test and make them sit in streamed rows because it was not not the streamed school and I mean that was quite a challenge but in the end we uh, we got there and um, but it, it was really hard teaching um, a class that were you know very very diverse in in skill sets you know some could barely read never mind about do their times tables and some were very very competent you know way above first and second year British standards at the time so trying to teach them all was quite quite hard. I mean, the, the better experience was with the this class that I thought I was going to teach, the, the what was the CSE class, and they they were fantastic uh, kids. And uh, you, it, you know, you you remember um, <clears throat> kids that uh, that make a difference to to you. And years later, I borrowed the college minibus because uh, by then I used to drive the netball team to matches. Because if you were twenty one, you could have a uh, the college license and um, provided you pass the college test and take and drive the, the college minibus and I borrowed it and took took the kids to see the nuclear reactor at Silwood Park at Ascot which they wound the top off so you could see the blue Sherenko glow um, and the, the kids were fascinated by stuff I took them to the science museum I took them into the lab and years later I was at a conference at uh, Loughborough and this voice behind me said, Miss, Miss. And I turned around <laughs> and it was one of my, you know, students from way back when who then worked as one of British Gas's graduate engineers. So it was, <laughs> it was, you know, you think, well, you know, maybe I made a difference. <laughs> well, you became the enthusiastic teacher that, that you'd had previously and made that positive impact on her life. Anyway, so so I'm just wondering um, when you uh, walked through the gates at the NFL uh, at Springfield's on that first day, how how did it feel? Well, it just felt uh, fantastic, you know, first job, and as my dad said, first chance to actually earn any money. <laughs> <laughs> so so that was a benefit. Um, I mean, I knew a bit about what they did because my PhD thesis had been on the CLAD, uh, the material Magnox AL80, the alloy that surrounds the um, the nuclear fuel. So I knew a bit about um, nuclear fuel because of the PhD subject that I'd done. And this was the place where they made it. Um, so I, I was going to actually get to see where they made the fuel that I discussed at great length in my thesis <laughs> so so what, what what sort of things were you you doing in those early years at uh, at bnfl springfields uh well i was um, allocated to the technical what was called the technical uh, department which is the technical support team for the uh the factory and so technical support people were either involved in you know improving and, and developing the process routes that the the factory used or fault finding if there was an issue so you know if the if the fuel product suddenly dis, you know displayed black spots um it, you know it was did it matter because sometimes it wouldn't um and uh you know where did they come from um what was the contamination uh, or uh, you know, if a vessel failed um, in one of the uh, one of the process plants, you know, why had it failed, and what did they need to change the material that it was made from, or was it just um, you know poor welding practice or something like that? So um, it was um, it was that sort of work. So it was different every day, fascinating. Yes, and a whole whole breadth of things. How, how did you find the sort of um... With a PhD, you're doing research. And I know it's sort of three years, which seems a long time. I know it's, it seems to go very quickly. 
But then when you're in industry, there's a commercial pressure as well. So they're looking for technical solutions, but there is a time constraint because if a plant's down, you know, it's not earning money, it's not delivering product and so on. So how did you cope with that sort of move into the more industrial environment? Uh, I guess you had to learn um, quite quickly that, you know, the 80-20 rule was 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 good enough. You know, if you'd got, uh, if you knew what the answer was, but you hadn't quite, you know, gone into as much detail as you would have liked in liked in the analysis you know you, you, the fundamentals were right but you know you maybe hadn't dotted out all the i's and crossed the t's that didn't matter the 80 percent was good enough to tell them what was the issue and how to how to fix it and also you learned that um you know the reports that they wanted for discussion weren't a phd thesis they wanted it two pages and uh, it summarised properly so that people who weren't expert in, in whatever it was could understand it. I mean, the other thing at the time, I mean, people will laugh listening to this podcast because it was in the days before mass reproduction. So um, the reason why only six copies of anything were ever made was because that was the most uh, numbers of carbon paper sheets you could put between paper for the typing pool to type your report up. And so, A, you learn to, to write short but succinct and accurate reports, um, and B, you learned not to make a mistake because if you had to go back to the typing pool and tell them that something needed to be retyped, you know, you you would go back to the back of the queue for everything if you did that. And that skill to summarise complex things in a short one or two pages is hugely important, isn't it? I think sometimes people think that volume is 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 you know shows that it's a good job, but actually summarizing complicated things to an audience who might not be as technically competent but you know have to make judgments and so on uh, is incredibly important skill absolutely and you know something i would recommend people you know if you can you know get to uh, get to figure out how to do that early in your in your career you know i think these days probably the universities are probably better now at preparing people for for work and you know the good ones have um courses or elements of courses where they encourage students to both make presentations and make them succinct and clear to everybody and also how to write uh, reports that are um succinct and and to the point i mean the other thing about the early years at, at work you know i was lucky in the bosses that i had um in that they were always uh, very en encouraging and I had one in particular who, who said, you know, make sure you grab every opportunity to broaden what you do. Don't just stick with what you you know well um, and and stay narrow, you know, try and get a, a bit of breadth. So, you know, he was the sort of boss that encouraged you to, you know, if, if they wanted a new secretary for a committee, you know, volunteer for it, even if it's not wholly your area of expertise, because you learn a lot by by doing that. You know, you learn how people chair meetings, um, you learn you know, how to be a secretary to a committee and make sure that you capture the important things. And again, that you don't write a PhD thesis worth of minutes, you know, <laughs> you, write, you write down what's important and make sure the actions get uh, get sorted. So he re recommended that to me. And he also, at the time, the nuclear sector was going through a period where it needed to do a lot better at external communications. And we'd, uh, uh, the company had hired a, a new press officer who wanted to open the factory to uh, visits to outsiders. And so what they needed was a panel of, um, of volunteers, um, you know, a mixture of young people and more experienced um, people to take groups round the factory. So that this is groups and women, women's institutes, um, 
uh, Rotary clubs, you know, the council, um, anybody who wanted to come and have a look. And they were trying to be a lot more open to show people that, you know, normal people work there. Um, and it wasn't this, you know, dangerous place that people thought it was. So um, that helped me a lot, both then and later in, you know, how to communicate about nuclear energy and, um, and how it's made, that sort of thing, with people who've got no scientific background at all. So that, that was a huge benefit to me in, in those early years. Yes, and it stretches you in different ways. And um, one of the, 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 you moved around a number of technical departments, and then you moved and had a stint in the sales and marketing department, so non-technical, um, and you were involved in the bid for um, a fuel for size well B. How did you find that move into the sort of harder-edged commercial sales world? Well, moving into the um, the sales world was, uh, I mean, it was different in, in so, so many ways. Um, you still needed um, a lot of technical expertise because even, you know, you're, even though you're in charge of trying to win business um, in the nuclear world when you're out you know selling nuclear fuel and that sort of thing internationally because you know interestingly if people didn't know that happens you know it does um, fuel is a tradable commodity and you know there are companies globally that do that um, so um, it, it gave me the chance to visit places I wouldn't have otherwise visited and to discover that um, you know there's a, a big nuclear family well actually it's not that big um, you know, it, it's a very uh, close international community of people who work in the nuclear sector. So going to, you know, Sweden, Spain, France, Italy, United States, Japan, um, you meet lots of people who are doing the same sort of things that you are. And um, y you make uh, friends and, and colleagues that are with you throughout your, your career. So going to all those different countries was fascinating. And also you know, looking at the way they did things, the way we did things, you know, it just added to the enjoyment of, uh, of work. And sort of following that, um, you, in, in 1992, you were promoted as executive director of technology. And I guess that position then enabled you or, or required you, I guess, to have a, a wider perspective than just, I guess, BNFL, um, at the time, but the the national picture, because that that post came with a, a seat at the, the Council of Science and Technology, um, uh, which was advising number 10 on important national science and technology issues. Um, how, how did you feel that your sort of career had equipped you for that post? Well, I guess, you know, it was another another big step change. But, um, you know, you, you learn that you, you can't be an expert in, in everything. And so you, you learn how to uh, rely on other people who are experts in the bits that you're you're not. And so, you know, to delegate to the right people to do the, the things that um, and, and to trust, to tr you know, you learn who to trust um, and um, and who to be a bit more wary of, let's put it that way, in terms of, uh, you know, how good they are, uh, uh, even though they might say they are. It's just something that you pick up along the way. I mean, the, the other thing that uh, I learned through interacting with people in other sectors, because you think, oh, I'm, I'm an, you know, a nuclear person. So, you know, how am I going to relate to people in aerospace and pharmaceuticals and uh, electrical engineering, that sort of thing. But actually you learn that you know, many of the issues that uh, are prevalent in, in companies in terms of, you know, organization, uh, equipment issues, they're the same, you know, it's, uh, 
people issues are the same the world the world over um and so you know there's a lot of commonality in uh, how companies run um and just experiences uh, shared that are actually blind to the technology background that you might have so uh it took me a while, but I began to understand that, um, you know, everybody has a contribution to make. That's really interesting. I was talking to someone recently and they were talking about the role of senior sponsors who are, who are not mentors, but but senior people who maybe have their eye on those within the organisation where they see a spark of something and actually can create opportunities. And it's almost like having a, um, what, what would I call it? just somebody watching over you in a strange sort of way, but in a positive way that creates opportunities. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I felt I hugely benefited from from that, particularly the year that I spent um, as the technical assistant or special assistant to the chief exec. I mean, that was just a whole new board ball game because you, you learn because you're with him all the time as, the, as his note taker, basically, and his and his brief manufacturer. Um, so you take all the board minutes, you take all the executive minutes, um, you go to all the meetings with him, you prepare the briefs for him and you write the notes afterwards. So you learn how a company works, you learn how it's interplay with government in, in the nuclear sector's case works. Um, and it was a huge beneficial experience uh, to me in pretty much everything that came thereafter. So, you know, once I became um, the uh, director for t um, technology for the whole of the company, I actually appointed uh, somebody to do the same for me. And so I had what was called a special assistant um, every year for the rest of my 16 years with the company. Um, and, um, you know, some of them went on to be leaders themselves. Um, some went on to do completely different things, um, but um, I think each would tell you that they had, you know, an experience that broadened their horizons hugely and enabled them to be um, positive about doing different things. Um, it's, it's fascinating. And, and, and another sort of aspect, we sort of touched on this a little bit around how, how many um, women were going into uh, studying material science at, at Imperial College, which was quite high, and then in some of the other roles you had, it was it was very low, I guess, when you started work at, at Springfield. Um, and of course, um, women in science and engineering is incredibly important and you playing a big sort of influencing role in that. And also increasing diversity uh, of thought, of characteristics more broadly is, is a big feature of the nuclear industrial strategy as well. You, how, how do you think we're doing and, and how do you think we can sort of accelerate that development within the sector? Well, well, certainly um, the the gender uh, diversity is is you know much improved from when uh, I first joined the the sector. Uh, I mean, part of it is down to you know the numbers of girls going into scientific subjects because when you know when I joined the sector, it was um, it was much rarer for girls to do go into topics that were associated with en engineering. You know, girls who were good at science. Um, tended to go and do, you know, medicine, dentistry, pharmacy, rather than um, other other subjects in the industrial sector. <clears throat> and so, um, particularly with the nuclear sector, we do a lot better now than than we did. I mean, some of it is born of the of the fact that, you know, we do a lot on environmental issues, and girls have, have always 
uh, gone into um, environmental type um, subjects uh, within the university sector, um, more so than they would say in mechanical or electrical engineering. I mean, there's still an issue in terms of gender diversity in topics like mechanical, electrical, civil. Um, you know, it's improving a bit, but not as much as I think generally en engineers would like. Um, so it's a lot better in, in gender diversity. Uh, it's getting better at uh, what I would call thought diversity by, you know, the number of stakeholders that it engages with because, it, you know, it's, it realised a long time ago that if it stayed in a silo, it was, you know, going to not, not do very well. So recognising that it needs to engage with those who are, you know, less enthusiastic about it, I think it is, is important and it's, it's learned that. Um, doing much better at communication outside, um, so doing a lot you know, making a real effort to communicate outside and send its ambassadors who are good at it, I think is is true. And also, you know, mobilising its its young generation, its its young people to speak on its behalf. I think that's made a very big difference, um, rather than you know, folk who've been around a lot a lot longer. Uh, I mean, also some of the initiatives that you yourself, Andrew, have, have undertaken to engage with, you know, other sectors, um, you know, like. You know, how, how do you get more in the way of um, robotics and uh, uh, artificial intelligence and that sort of thing into a sector which is, huge, which is hugely conservative? Well, you look at other industries that have, you know, equal requirement to be um, safe and secure, like the aerospace sector, um, you know, learning from what they can offer. Um, and I know you've, you've run quite a lot of um, uh, interchanges with other sectors that have made a big difference. So, you know, I think by bringing people in from other sectors, you always, you know, refresh the thinking and, and that's always helpful. So I want to take you back now to when you arrived in London um, at Imperial College and about to go into that first lecture or that lecture was Schrodinger's equation on the board. Um, uh, if you could just stop her before she went into that lecture and whisper some advice to her, what would your advice be? I guess it would be to take every day as it, as it comes. Um, you know, you've, you've got there because you've got the qualifications to get there. So, you know, don't be afraid. You're as, as good as anybody else walking in there. Everybody else is going to find it strange as well. Um, and just um, never be afraid to, to ask and never be afraid to ask for help if you're, if you're struggling a bit. Very good. That, that's, that's great advice. That asking questions, even if you think they're silly, they're never silly, are they? And they make a huge difference. So, Sue, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great to chat through your early years and, and, and your career and still making a big influence on our sector, which we're very grateful to you for. Oh, you're welcome. I've enjoyed talking to you, Andrew. Thanks very much for asking me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.